Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corbrew. What's good, revolutionaries? Episode three, season three. We are excited about what's going on with the What's Your Revolution show. And hopefully you had a chance to listen to my main man, Mawangi, Eric Crazy, as he talked about how to stay healthy in the era of corona. It was a wonderful show as he dropped knowledge about what you can put in your body, what you should eat, and how you should be taking care of yourself to thwart off this deadly virus that is actually ravaging the world. But there are ways to take care of yourself, and so make sure that you listen to that wonderful, wonderful episode with Mawangi, Eric Crazy. I'm excited. I'm always excited to do this show, as I've mentioned so many times, that this is the highlight of my week, this hour uh, that I get to spend with some of the most prolific people in the world. And today, I'm overjoyed to be able to spend time with my friend. And I don't say that quite often. You know, I bring people on the show, you know, I talk about how dynamic they are, but this is my friend. And I want to talk a moment about how we met. I met Mohammed Leela last year uh, as I began my journey as the director of the Education and Conscious Tech Fellowship at Camelback Ventures. Mohammed was our entrepreneur in residence. And I remember interviewing him as he came in and we just struck up this conversation about basketball. He lives in Toronto and I know that he is smiling ear to ear about his world champion Toronto Raptors. But that's how we galvanized our friendship over an interview talking about basketball and Kawhi Leonard and the greatness of the Toronto Raptors. We talked about our my Pelicans as they were, you know, losing Anthony Davis. But over the year that we spent with each other, we began to talk about life and his experiences, my experiences, through a number of him number of times him interviewing me about what was going on, what was revolution, what's your revolution, he was able to galvanize and build a relationship with me. And so I'm honored today to have my friend, international broadcast journalist, Mohammed Leela, who's been with a number of networks, ABC, CNN, contributing author for the Huffington Post, a, a number of networks across the world. Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, Mohammed. How are you, brother? I'm doing great, Charles, and I am still smiling ear to ear after that amazing introduction. You know, your your listeners don't know this, but you mentioned that I'm a I'm a big Toronto Raptors fan. You and I were watching Game Six. <laughs> I knew you were of, the, of the of the NBA Finals. We were in New York City in Brooklyn. We were there for the week, and it was Game Six. And you and I sat there watching, and I learned something very important from you that night. Uh, it wasn't that Kawhi Leonard was great or that the Raptors were a good team. You're a big Golden State Warriors fan. Yes. Yes, I am. I, I, I know New Orleans is your city, but I know you were rooting for them in the playoffs. And you showed so much grace with your team losing that night. There was no tantrum. There was, there was nothing. It was just complete <laughs> grace. And it's one of those things like, look, Toronto, this was the first time they won. And you always remember where you were when your team won. Wow. And that memory of watching it with you is going to stay with me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I am so honored. I'm so honored with that, Muhammad. It was a wonderful night. And it was interesting because I was exhausted. I was exhausted because we had done programming all day long, all week long. I want to say it was a Wednesday or a Thursday night. And I was yeah. tired. I remember you text and said, hey, you still want to watch the game? And I was like, man, I just want to go to bed. And I remember going downstairs in the Airbnb and you were sitting there 
I was like, oh, I got to sit here and watch the game with him. <laughs> <laughs> and our good friend Riaz was upstairs. Riaz was like, I'm going to I'm going to bed. But it was very memorable to sit and watch the game with you and to watch Steph miss that last shot. And we and both of us were like, what is this going to go in? Is Steph going to be, as you said, is Steph going to be Steph tonight? And as it clanged off the rim, the Raptors became the world champions first time. And I remember, you know, like the excitement on your face, the excitement, you know, growing up in Toronto, you know, having the Raptors be the team that they are, bringing Kawhi in, and just to see the joy on your face. I remember that as well. And, you know, I'm grateful to have been able to spend that time with you. You know, we talked about me coming up to Toronto because they were playing the Pelicans during their first game of the season, or one of their first games in the seasons, and it just didn't work out. But I'm hoping, I am hoping that we have the ability to go to a Raptors game I want to say that I was listening to the Sports Center today, and if the playoffs were to start today, the Raptors would still be the second seed. What's up with that? Yeah, it's a good listen, man. Everybody talked about, oh, once Kawhi leaves, the Raptors are just going to go back to being like kind of a, a middle of the pack kind of team. And and I was saying this since day one. Look, Kawhi is great, probably one of the top two or three players in the NBA right now, definitely top five. But even if you take him off that team, the team plays so well as a team with a great team-oriented offense where they move the ball, they find the open shots, they maximize every player's strengths, that the Raptors were going to be just fine without Kawhi. And, and people laughed at me, and, and I think what we're seeing now is Nick Nurse is, in my opinion, the best coach in the NBA right now. Because <laughs> he's the Raptors actually have a better record at this point than they did it last year. Wow. And they're doing, and they're doing it without Kawhi Leonard. And I think that's simply amazing. And the best part is, I think when the, you know, hopefully the, the season will, will pick back up how, in however long it takes. And when the playoffs begin, people will think, oh, you know, the Raptors aren't going to do anything without Kawhi. And mark my words, they're going to get into a series with Milwaukee and it's going to go to seven games. And the winner of that series is going to make it to the NBA finals. And I think Toronto has a really good shot at it. I'm right with you. And I'm rooting. I am rooting with you because the West is, you know, now dominated with Anthony Davis went over to the Lakers. I won't even watch a Lakers game. Right. With him yeah. and LeBron. So I will be rooting for who's ever coming out of the East, because, as you know, my other team, the Golden State Warriors, lost three of their best players. And Steph and Clay are not. Well, actually, Steph's back, but Clay's not back. Katie's gone. And so and Draymond's just not being Draymond. So I'm going to be rooting for the team coming out of the East. And so I'm going to hope that those Toronto Raptors and Van Fleek and Kyle Lowry, whose birthday is today, he turned 34 today. That was crazy. Isn't that crazy? Isn't yeah. that crazy that he's he's still playing? And, 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 you know, he signed a contract extension and everybody was saying, you can't sign a, a 33 or a 34 year old guard to a two year contract extension. No guard plays well when they're in their mid thirties. And <laughs> he's, he's still look, man, there's a reason why he's the heart and soul of the Raptors. He just puts it all out on the line every night. And, and he, it doesn't feel like he's getting older, which is, no. which is crazy, right? Because you look at him, he doesn't look like he's a chiseled athlete the way LeBron no, is no. or, an, or an Anthony Davis, but he just, he just, he just has this heart and this engine that just doesn't slow down. Yeah, no, no, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Muhammad, you know, sometimes we can get lost in conversations. If, you know, if anybody heard our conversation in a green room, we spent 20 minutes uh, just talking about our lives and what's going on with Corona and our families. And it was a wonderful time, but I would be remiss if I did not ask our signature question. Mohammed, what's your revolution? My revolution is to leave the world better than I found it. Mm. And, and I think that can, that can manifest in a whole bunch of different ways. 
it can manifest through first for me is taking care of my family, being a good father, being a good husband, being a good son, being a good son-in-law, being a good sibling. That's first and foremost, because I think, you know, if you can somehow get your own life in order, then I think by extension, your family's life will be in order also. Right. And to me, that's kind of like the basic unit. And then it goes out from there, right? Make my community better, my street, my neighborhood, my circle of friends, leave them better than when I found it. And you can go all the way to the top, which is one of the reasons why I got into journalism was leave the entire world better than I found it. Right. And, and, and I think it's so if you start at a very basic point, you just let it radiate out from there. So that I would say is my revolution. Wow. I love it. Leave the world a better place. Grounded in family. Grounded in family. And, and as our conversation started today, we both talked about the, the perils of our families and our wanting to make sure that they are safe. And so leaving the world a better place because our families have created space for us to be successful. And I love that. I love that. And then, and then moving up to our communities. To me, that signals a good man, Muhammad, someone who doesn't think about himself. And as we talk about what it means to find and embrace the healthiest versions of ourselves, we think that, you know, we've got to work on ourselves so much. But as you said, if I'm doing well, I can then go out and build up my community. I can support my family. I can love on that. I can love on my children. I can love on my wife, all those different things. So I love that. But the world, you know, the world wants to know a little bit more. And, and you know, as we talked earlier, you know, Mohammed, you may be the most high profile guest that I've ever had on the show. But tell my listeners, my revolutionary, who is Muhammad Leela? Wow, I still think of myself as the kid that was struggling to fit in mm. growing up in a Toronto suburb. I look at my life and what I'm trying to do and where I am now, and, and I'm just filled with so much gratitude to my parents because I will never know the lengths that they went through and the struggles that they went through to raise three kids in a country that they chose to move to. Mm. So my parents moved to Canada in the 1970s. And I know right now everybody thinks of Canada as a very tolerant and diverse place. And in a lot of ways it is, but it wasn't the case in the 1970s. And my, my parents came from East Africa, from Tanzania. They were fortunate enough that they were taught English growing up in school, which made it a little bit easier. They endured a lot. They endured a lot of, of name-calling, my father used to tell us a story. He, he worked at a bank when he, when he moved to Canada, and he worked in their investment line. And in his role, he made the bank a lot of money, but he kept getting passed over for promotions. And he would, it came to a point where he's like, look, I, I've probably made this bank. In, in that time, it was a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions. And yet, why aren't I getting the promotions that all these other people are getting promoted for? And a lot of it just had to do with the skin color. Wow. Yeah. And, and somehow through all of the struggles and kind of building a new life for yourself and your family in a new country, they managed to raise three kids. And I was the youngest, I, a bit of a rebel, I guess you could say in the family. <laughs> I can't see that. I can't see oh, that. Oh no, Muhammad. no. I have, I have, <laughs> I have, I look mild mannered, but I have such a rebellious streak. You have no idea. And, and, and let's, let's be honest, Charles, no, nobody has any idea. Right. Right. And maybe that's a good thing. The, the rebels, the quiet rebels are the ones that change the world. Yeah, but I, I think you're right. And, and, and I think also, I just have a deep, strong, a streak of if I think what I'm doing is right, mm. I don't give a damn what anybody else thinks. I, I've had cases where very high profile people have come to shake my hand and I refuse. Wow. 
I love that. And, and it put my own safety in danger, but I refused to shake their hand on the principle that I believe they had blood on their hands. Mm. And, and I could not bring myself. It was a little bit reckless. And I, I didn't have kids at the time, but there have been cases like that where just based on principle, I, I will refuse to do things like this is silly. But I, I, when I moved overseas with ABC, I was living in Pakistan and we had to find a place to live. And, you know, you bargain with the lease and stuff. And I was $50 apart from what the guy wanted and what I was offering. $50 apart. I had nowhere to live. Uh, my family and I were crashing at a, at a relative's house. And I refuse to pay him an extra 50 bucks a month just based on principle. Right. So I do have that really kind of like that hard ass kind of streak where- <laughs> Where if, did that if, come if from? I, I don't know. Because I don't know. My parents are not like that. My <laughs> siblings are not like that. I, I think I just feel that I just have maybe a strong sense of justice that if if something is right, it's right. And bending it or changing it or trying to convince people otherwise doesn't mean anything because it's right. Right. So like So like helping people is the right thing to do. And you can try to talk yourself out of it, but it's the right thing to do. And sometimes that means you got to sacrifice yourself, right? Like, and and I hopefully it never comes to like actually sacrificing my life. But at, at the end of the day, that's what doctors do. That's what soldiers do. That's what that's what some of the best and most ordinarily heroic people do every single day. They they give everything they have to what they do. And I try to live my life the same way. That's so interesting, Mike, because what bubbles up in my mind is if you had to put a percentage of, of people that you think live by principle, that's this principled nature, what would be that percentage, right, that, that say that look at justice and, and, and right and live their life based on that perspective? Based on all yeah. of you, based on your experiences, like the people that you've met, and you know, we'll get into that story in a little bit longer. But the people that you've met, how would you say? What's the percentage of people that live this same principled life that you do? I, I think you have two groups of people. You have one group of people which just wants to get on with their life, and they're they're probably the majority. They don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers. They don't want to go up against anything. They just want the basic things in life and to be happy just like everybody else and to live a normal life. And then I think you have maybe a minority within that that stands up for a principle, whether that principle is freedom or or the, the principle to earn money or the principle to run your business or all sorts of things. Where the problems start is that some people's principles are just whack. Yeah. Like, like we were talking about this. So we live in a world right now that's full of a lot of panic. It's full of a lot of fear. And it's forcing us as communities and cities and streets and neighborhoods in North America to think about other people. That's just the nature of the way this coronavirus is because you could be carrying something and you don't even know it. Right. So, so it's not just about, well, I'm okay. Because at the end of the day, you don't know you're okay unless you get one of those tests. And so what that does is, that puts people in an awkward position because there are people out there who have this principle of, for example, freedom. And freedom is a meaningful principle and it's something worth fighting for. But people will take that principle and say, well, listen, I live in a country where tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people died so that I could have my freedom. And that freedom means I can go wherever I want, whenever I want. I can open up my restaurant. I can go to the park and have a party. I can go vacation in Florida. And that's my God-given right as an American and a person living in this community. And that's where principle gets tricky. Right. Because, mm. because, mm. because those, those people, it's easy to dismiss them and say what they're doing is wrong. Maybe, but they are living their life according to a principle that they believe in. Mm. And, and so we, we got to be careful to not make that mistake. We can look at those people and say those people are unprincipled. 
that's actually not the case. They're actually very principled. It's just the principle that they're fighting for and that they believe in is not something that I guess the rest of us uphold as, as, as a valid principle. Right, right. And I think because if you hear the discourse that is going on across the world, and I say across the world because you, you can really become saturated at the, the yelling, the loudness of what's going on in America, but we are seeing this across the world. People think, right, that I'm, these are my values, this is my principle, and I'm acting according to that, right? And then we begin to argue instead of trying to figure out, like, what's really right for our communities and for our nation? And we become so tribalized and we argue, right? Well, this is what I believe in. This is my principled nature. And oftentimes, you know, I can't say oftentimes, but sometimes, as you just said, the principled nature doesn't work well for the totality of our society. If we looked at what was going on in the Florida beaches, those kids were like, hey, my principle, I'm going to have a good time. Nobody's going to tell me what I should be doing. But then they had to rethink that. They had to rethink, well, wait a minute, are my, dis are my actions actually harming society and the community at large? But what I think that I love about you, all right, is you understand what principled means and the structure and value. Like, I'm not going to shake someone's hand because, as you said, there's blood on their hands. They've done something that is incongruent with my value structure, with society's value structure that I have ascribed to. And I have a problem with it, but you see that some people will just go along. And, you know, I, I say that because, you know, what I've heard over the last three years with our president is that let's just give him a chance, right? Let's let's just, you know, let's see what he can do. But it goes against their value structures. And I'm like, what's mm -hmm. going on? Right? What What's yeah. happening to our country? When his behavior goes against how you were living before this, I just don't understand that, Muhammad. And so, yeah, and I, I don't think you're alone, Charles. And look, I've lived in the United States. I've worked in the United States. I've worked for American news networks, as you know. Mm -hmm. But as a Canadian, I, and, and in fact, I think there are a lot of Canadians that when we look at the state of America and the politics and how everything becomes politicized, a lot of us just look down there and shake our heads and just say, <laughs> most like, people in the world. Do. Like, like, so listen, I have the advantage of having lived and worked in the United States. A lot of my friends are Americans. I've covered big stories in the United States. There are times where I still have no idea how anything gets done down there. <laughs> we don't and either. It, it, re it really surprises me because like, and, and I think it's partly it's a function of the way the political system is set up. But also, I mean, who in the world made the rule that you can only have two political parties? I, it, I, I, I like in, in Canada, we have multiple parties. I mean, there have been three major ones for a long time. There, this year, you can make the argument that there's four or five. Wow. But we've never had two. And if anybody came down and said, no, we're just going to kind of narrow it down to two, Canadians wouldn't accept that. They would say, you can't just put us in group A or group B because it doesn't account for all the other people that don't know where they fit in. Mm. And just to get political a bit, I think part of that explains why Bernie Sanders is is doing so well. And he's he's starting to split the, the Democratic Party. He is. You're exactly right. Because so Bernie Sanders would not be radical in Canada. A lot of what he's talking about is is actually policy in Canada. So things like, you know, loans for students and universal health care. So universal health care and, you know, a social security net. Those things aren't just like a, a dream in Canada. Those are realities that we live with every day and that people come to accept it. 
And what, but what you see in America is like, there isn't actually a party that sort of subscribes to those values. Like it's a struggle for him within the Democratic Party to get people to sign on to this because it's seen as so radical. And what's interesting about him is that I think he has the support, like broad support for people who are under 30 years old. Yeah, he does. Tremendous. But, but the handcuff that he has is that he has to work within the Democratic Party. Exactly. Which, and, is, and, which is so confusing, right? Because in Canada, he could have just formed his own party and taken that support base with him and you could have voted for that party directly rather than having to, to sort it out through like a primary process. And we've been with the two-party structure, you know, forever. And it's almost shameful, right? You're ashamed if you're Green Party or uh, I can't think of any other because the Green Party really had an influence on the 2016 election and the candidate, I can't remember her name, but the candidate took away about, you know, two or three percentage of, uh, of the vote. Right. And... But we're shamed if you're not Republican or Democrat, you know, somewhere you're like, well, your thinking is outside of the box. And I love that because I love that Canada speaks to the point that you can have this autonomy to think about policy in a different way, that you can form your own party and then come up and make some traction. We just don't we just don't get a chance to do that here. What has happened is that we use language here in the United States to vilify. And so although I may not agree with Bernie Sanders' policies or him as a viable candidate for the presidency, he's been labeled as revolutionary. And revolution scares Americans. It, scare, it scares them. Like, oh, he's too radical or he's too revol. Those words, right, radical and revolutionary are, right, right. you know, knives in people. It, it speaks of unrest, and they, we, when we think of revolution, we think about the, the Civil War, we think about the Civil Rights Movement, and people have, like, we don't want another revolution in our country. We love the yeah. status quo. And once Bernie became the front runner, he was front runner for a couple of weeks, maybe yeah. even a couple of days. He got the front runner status, and then all of this language began to say, he's too revolutionary, he's too radical, right? He's too progressive for the Democratic Party. And so that's what we've seen. Joe was Joe Biden was almost out of the race. He was thinking about throwing in the towel. But then he got he got into the states that were more diverse. He kept talking about how I am a moderate Democrat, which most of America is. Yeah. They're either a moderate Republican or they're a moderate we're in the middle. It's those loud, the progressive wing and the far right wing that allowed us to make most of the noise. And so Joe was yeah. like, hey, wait a minute, look at me. And he's been able to gain this front runner status. And now Bernie's thinking about dropping out of the race. So it, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah. So let me let me give you a quick example. And and I think it's an example of, of a growing concern, not only in America, but I think in a lot of places around the world. A couple of years ago, I spent some time with the KKK. And yes. Yeah. Yes, um, yes, they do. were they were doing a rally in South Carolina where they it was. Do you remember when the Confederate flag controversy was going on? So so there was a whole issue with South Carolina where either they were deciding or they had already decided to remove the Confederate flag. And the KKK applied for a rally at the state capitol and they were given permission. So what ended up happening was the KKK was planning to, to do a, a demonstration. And then you had like thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who were protesting in opposition to that. Mm -hmm. So, and it was a very racially charged atmosphere, as you can imagine, right? In, in a town that already has a lot of racial divides in Charleston. And so, so I went down there and I was covering it and I made it to the front lines and I was talking to people on both sides. And the Grand Dragon saw me with a, 
with with a camera person and called me over and, and we had a nice little chat. <laughs> wow. And I look, I'll, 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 I should say that afterwards, they emailed me and asked me if I wanted to attend a cross lighting ceremony. And they said, look, we, we were really appreciative of your position when you spoke with us, you were respectful. And, you know, we might disagree, but we're doing a cross lighting <laughs> ceremony. And, you know, exactly. we'd love for you to be our special guest. And look, I'll do a lot of things that are kind of crazy, but no way in hell am I going to a cross lighting ceremony being done by the KKK because I know who they're lighting up and I'm not interested in coming back with burned clothes. So anyways, when I was talking to them, I, I found something really interesting that I didn't expect. Number one is that a lot of the KKK consider themselves deeply religious people. So when, when you talk to them, they'll quote the Bible, right? They'll be quoting from scripture to support what they believe and segregation and how whites and blacks should not mix. And I was really not impressed, but I was really surprised by that. That, that when, you, when you speak to some of their senior leaders, they're not just uneducated, illiterate people like the stereotype says. Some of these people run businesses and some of them are successful. But you know, as I spent more time with them, I realized something that a lot of these people were coming from communities where they had so much taken away from them. Maybe their houses were taken away. Maybe their jobs were lost. They had problems at home. Maybe they came from family structures that weren't functional to begin with. And a lot of these people had so much taken away and what the KKK did as an organization was it gave them an identity, right? Where it basically said, look, you are one of us and you belong. Identity is such a powerful thing in the world because everybody wants to fit in. And if you're not sure where yeah. you fit in and you have a group of exactly. people that look like yes. you, that are fun, that help you out, you will want to be part of that group. It's, it's the same gang mentality. You see it in prisons, you see it in offices, you see it everywhere. And, and what I realized was that those people that join the KKK, they would lay down their lives for their new identity, for their group. And in that respect, I don't think that it's only the KKK. And you talked about how yes, you know, most yes, Americans are on the yes. middle. You have a growing number of people who are on the fringe, who their entire identity is based on their political yes. affiliation. Oh, exactly. and, and it goes beyond that. For some people, their entire identity is what sports team they follow, right? So, so la last year, yes. I, I tweeted out a, th a thread, a story about one of Toronto's biggest fans. His name is Nav Bhatia. They call him the sports, the super fan. It was a great story. And within there, there was a thread that, that <laughs> took a shot at Milwaukee for not being more diverse. And to this day, like that was, dude, that wow. was a year ago. Wow. And to this day, I'll have people randomly message me saying, hey, we haven't forgot about what you said about Milwaukee. And with stuff like, don't come to our city, right? And like, it's, it's stuff like that that makes you realize that like, look, it, it's great to have an identity and it's great to be part of a group, but you will always be bigger than the lines that other people define for you, right? So if somebody says, look, if you're a Milwaukee fan, you have to do this. If you're a Toronto fan, you have to do this. Well, I mean, you can do it, but you're greater than that. You as yourself, as your soul, as your being, as your person is greater than any of these things. It's greater than your, your affiliation with the Republican Party, the Democrat Party. It's greater than all these yes. things. But what you see is a lot of people don't, don't, don't live that way. So to them, they will live and die for their Republican values. And if the leader of the Republican Party comes out tomorrow and completely changes the policy, that person will totally fall in line because that's the party that they support. What's scary about that is that those people aren't following a principle, right? Those are people that are just following a party and the principle changes according to the whim of whoever's in charge. That's a dangerous thing. That is, it is super dangerous. It is super dangerous. And that is what's happening in our country. Because if you think about strict Republican values, our president does not fall in line with strict Republican values. And to hear people say that 
I'm just going to give him a chance, right? When you believe it, you know, when you believe in strict Republican values, and I'm a fiscal con- conservative, I'm an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs are fiscal conservatives, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the middle. He doesn't fit. The debt is going to be out of control. And so thinking through those things is, it's quite interesting. What brings me to this, you know, this, this conversation that we're having brings me to the experiences that you've had as a journalist. And, you know, we haven't talked about it much, but you have been embedded in wartime. What has that been? What have you learned, right, by being embedded in countries of war and, and broadcasting from these tumultuous places in the world, but seeing people, you know, at their worst and at their best? What has that done for you? So first question, what has it been like? And then what has it done for you as you think about your own life? Yeah, I, I love this question because it forces me to go back and process all of these experiences that I've had. Look, at my peak, I was averaging more than 100 flights a year. And, and I did that for several years. And not even nice flights. Like These, these are like, like Black Hawk helicopters and cargo flights and Hercules aircraft and, and you name it. And I've covered almost every war zone that you could think of, maybe not including Africa, because I haven't spent enough time down there. But I lived in Afghanistan over the course of three years, in and out, lived in Pakistan, been on the front lines in the war on ISIS multiple times, been to Syria multiple times. I'm at the point now where I'll go to Iraq just for fun. (laughs) Did you hear that, people? He said, I'll go to Iraq just for fun. (laughs) No, but it's not like, look, if you're going to the right places, it's it's a very different reality than than what you see on the TV. But in all of these experiences, I've, I've realized something. And it was, I think you can in one way almost call it sort of a spiritual experience. I realized that on a fundamental level, human beings are all the same. We clothe ourselves in names and labels. So I'm a Muslim, somebody else is Christian, another guy could be Buddhist, somebody's Republican, somebody is a particular ethnicity. These are all the sort of labels that we give ourselves. But when you strip all of that away, whatever that sparkle, whatever that sparkle of of being, of existence is within that person, that soul, we're all the same. And there's no difference between me and you and, you know, an elderly grandmother or, you know, a young child that was born in India. That soul inside us is is the same. And and I'm not saying like literally the same in the sense that like I can open my eyes and see through the eyes of like somebody else in the other part of the world. But I, I think the basic drive that we have within us is exactly the same. So when a mother cries because her son has just been shot in inner city Chicago, that impulse comes from a deep place inside. And it's the exact same feeling, exact same emotion that an Afghan mother feels when her son has been killed in a drone strike. And that's what I mean by everybody is the same. Right. And, and I'm not saying these labels are not important. Like they had, they, I think they can have value, but on a fundamental level, I wish that people understood this. Because if I'm able to look at you and say, look, you and I have very different backgrounds, different accents. You're this chiseled physical feature of a man and I'm not, <laughs> but, and, and we're so different. So if you looked at us, right, like you would think we don't have anything in common, but if you strip it down, we're a lot more similar than people think mm. w- would think we are. And I think that's the same for everybody. And if people could do that with quote unquote, their enemies, or people they disagreed with, I think the world would be a very different place. Oh, wow. Because then because then you're not dealing with people based on differences. You're dealing with people based on understanding that you're all the same. Right. And that's how you change the world. Not by focusing on the differences, but by bringing out those things that are the same. 
and all mm. we're doing, and I love that, Muhammad, all we're doing is focusing on our differences. That's all we're doing right now. Even in this era of corona, we're still focusing on our differences. And yeah. this is a time, this should be a time of hope. People galvanizing together, coming together, a time of collaboration. Because at the end of the day, like you said, life is life, right? The loss of life is the loss of life. And yeah. if we can really break that down to my favorite word in the entire language is parsimonious, right? It's simplest form, right? We have hope, yeah. we have love, we have joys, we have trials, we have toils, we have friendship, we have grace, we have gratitude, we have laughter. If yeah. we can highlight those things, Muhammad, even in war, right? And, and so I guess what I hear that all this time where you have been embedded in, in war, the potential of those wars ending or never being started is could have been if we could have seen similarity in each other. Is that what you're saying? If we could have find similarity. Like, I don't think disagreements would stop overnight. And, and to be honest, they shouldn't because sometimes you, like I said, sometimes you have to stand up for principle, right? So in principle, if somebody invades your country, you need to defend your family. That's a, that's a basic principle. And I understand that. And there's value in that. But I also think that if you looked at everybody else as having, this is, this is going to sound strange. But we think when, when we think of ourselves, we think we have great potential, right? So we, we dream that one day we will become bigger than we, we are right now, right? Whether that's you're working out your biceps, whether that's you're working on your free throw technique, whether that's, you know, you're trying to be a good husband, it, it translates into every facet of your life is that you hope that one day you will be better than you are now. Now, if you can accept that and say, okay, most people hope to be better than they are today. Well, why can't we apply that when we look at other people? Why can't I say, okay, well, this guy just did something that really pissed me off, right? That, that guy did something that was so outrageous, I should go and just whoop his ass right now. If you stop and you say, well, if this person is trying to be a better person tomorrow than he is today, then there's still hope. Mm. And that's the key, right? It's like you act when you, know, you think that person has no hope or, or you think that hope is, is not going to do anything. If you say, okay, well, this person still has hope, and in their own twisted way, they mean well, <laughs> right? The, the way to combat that is to fix their twisted way, right? It's not through force. You can't, you can't force somebody to think the way that you want through force. That just comes through time, right? And it's like Gandhi said, right? Like I just, He was one of those aberrations in history where the guy had nothing, he had so little, and yet he freed a country of a billion people without firing a single bullet. It's very rare that that's happened throughout history, maybe just a handful of times. And he said, first they, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win, right? And, yeah. and those are kind of the stages that, that, that it goes through. Right. And it's a, much, it's a much harder path. It is a much harder path. It's a much harder path because there's no instant gratification. There's no, hey, this is going to be over in a week or two. It's a much longer road, but the result is that much more satisfying. Right. It's like, right. it's like coronavirus, right? Everybody's talking about it. Look, do you shut down for several weeks and stand in that boxing ring and take those punches mm. knowing that the economy is going to suffer? But when that round one is done, it's like, it's like Ali versus Foreman, right? <laughs> you, 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 you go in there and you stand on the ropes and you take those shots over and over again. But by the eighth round or ninth round or 10th round, whatever it takes, that boxer is going to be tired out and you're going to whoop his ass. You're gonna, <laughs> I love that. You're exactly right. And, you know, I think about the, the various instances where I've been in and where I've wanted to just fight, like, you know, being the unhealthy version of myself. And if I had been patient, 
right? If I had been patient, if I had, if I had seen things from a hopeful perspective, maybe things would have been different. If I had seen the goodness in people, even in, even in times of strife. And I think that's hard. It's that's hard. hard because the brain goes to sometimes the most negative part of people, right? That's what keeps us different. You're an ass, right? And so yeah. that's how I'm going to see you. And so we have to figure out how to find out hope. So if you're listening and think about this, if you're in a situation and you haven't seen the hope part of it or the good part of it, think through that perspective and see if you can figure out another solution, even though it may be a harder solution. You may come out on the other side in a better place than what you thought. You know, Mohammed, the, the, the conversation is so rich, but I, I want to make sure that we get into this opportunity to talk about you as a man as well. You talked about your family in the beginning and how, you know, leaving the world a better place and making sure that you're protecting your family, protecting your wife, protecting your children, protecting your mother and father, being a good stalwart in your community. But one thing I know about you as a man is that you're one of the calmest people that I know, <laughs> you know, and that's because we haven't, we haven't played basketball. Yet, <laughs> exactly. I don't know if we're ever going to play basketball with these Achilles, oh. um, but I, I, I just remember our conversations and the groundedness that you bring to everything, uh, even to this conversation, what grounds you, what keeps you so focused on seeing the positivity of life and you know because it, it there's got to be a foundation that grounds you what is that yeah i think it's my mom mm. my my mom is the the calmest most serene woman that i've ever met and she's gone through a lot in life but outwardly it doesn't phase her and you know some some women and we we all know women like this in our lives you look at them and you say wow that's a strong woman i think with my mother the that she has such a deep reservoir of strength internally that you wouldn't see on the outside, but it's there. And I remember, I remember when I was young. So, you know, Muslims, Muslims pray five times a day. Right. And I remember my, my mother would leave her, her, her door open when she would pray. And, you know, you're supposed to pray at certain times, right? Like there's certain times of the day, like in the morning and then at night and then the, during the day. And, and my mother would always, I would always catch her praying at night. Right. Like she wanted to get all her work done so that she could kind of have that moment with herself with a, with a clear mind and a clear conscience and not worry about, oh, you know, this this kid needs food or I need to pack this thing for tomorrow. And I remember she would leave the door open sometimes and I would just sit there and watch her. And it was the calmest I've ever seen anybody in my life. And and I didn't try to be that way, but but maybe just by virtue of being around her, something of that got got passed on to me or rubbed off of me or something <laughs> where I don't have any other explanation for it. Like we've talked about being in a war zone. I was I've been held at gunpoint a bunch of times. Yeah. Wow. And one of them, one of them was particularly bad in Ukraine, where they actually had the guns to our heads and and we were on the ground. And, you know, we have training for this and they, they, they train you to assess the threat level. And if you're, if somebody just holds you at gunpoint, you can assess it very quickly based on how many guns are there, what's going on around you. And this was a higher threat level because people around us were getting shot. Like there were actually exchanges of gunfire going on around us and, and people were bleeding and stuff like that. So I remember this clearly where we were being forced to the ground and I just had this moment of calm come over me. And afterwards, I asked my producer, I said, look, during that moment, what was going on in your mind? He said, I was seeing my life flash before my eyes because I was convinced that was my time to go. And he turned to me and he said, well, what, what did you experience? And I said, I was, I was calm and I was almost amused by what was going on. <laughs> 
but but amused amused in the sense that like as this was going on i just kept thinking to myself what a strange and bizarre thing life is mm. right and and I, I wasn't nervous i wasn't i kept control of all my bodily functions i <laughs> i was i was calm and and i think that just i think that just carried on and i can't explain it but I, what i can say definitively is that being calm has saved my life more than on more than one occasion. You know, and I love that. Uh, I, I love saying that being calm in a, in a world that is thrown into chaos so many times. And for people, you know, who live in chaotic situations, not panicking, right? I it's... mean, I panic. Look, look and not to interrupt, Charles, but I, I panic just like everybody else. I panic, I don't know, at least a few times a day, man. Like, <laughs> like I panic just like everybody else. And so here's the here's the crazy part, right? Did you ever used to go to Blockbuster? Do you remember that? Story yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We talk about this all the so, time in entrepreneurship. Yeah, so I I would go to Blockbuster, and it would take me half an hour to decide what movie to rent. Like I'd, I'd pick up all the DVD cases and look at everything and read it, whatever. But like when it came when it comes to major decisions, I'll make them right away. So there's there's this weird thing where like I'm I'm calm in in the most important parts of my life, but then I'll spend half an hour on my fantasy <laughs> basketball team, like trying to trying to figure out like you know do I drop Mike Conley because he sucks this year? Like, it just it's it's weird. I can't can't explain it. But I think a lot of people probably go through that, right? Where we all deal with pressures in our lives differently. Differently, yeah, I, and, I would and, agree. And, no, and nobody's perfect. And like, don't kill yourself because you're not perfect. Because we're all we're all like that, right? I I hear that, Muhammad. But I think about you know I, I think about certain people in my life and like my good friend Jake Swig, who's been on the show. He's a former Navy SEAL. Nothing rattles him, right? He's been in the same thing. He's been in wartime. You know, he's a former SEAL. He's you know he's been you know put to the yeah. test. Buds, different things like that. He just doesn't get rattled. Yeah, I feel those guys are those guys are hardcore. Those guys hard- are seriously. Those guys are seriously like, I've never met anybody in special forces, especially a Navy SEAL, who, when the time comes to be razor focused, razor focused, like they're, they're, those guys are just, they can focus at a level I've never seen anywhere else. Right. But I feel the same way about you, like thinking about that. I mean, I, I'm wondering the same situation. I, I've got a gun to my head. Now I've jumped out of planes, I've skied, you know, down downhill on mountains, uh, all these different things. But I'm thinking, I'm like, there's a gun to my head. I'm in a foreign country, right? There's a potential that I might lose my life, but I feel like Muhammad Leela is just like, okay, I'm going to assess the threat level here. And what am I going to do to potentially get out of this? Most, most people, I think they're panic, right? They're flight or fright. They haven't been able to control to, to mentally control the fight or flight system that goes along in the body. But I just feel from the calmness that you exude that the grounding and, and potentially seeing your mother in that ground grounded phase. Has, has maybe contributed to you being calm in the most chaotic, frenzied, war-torn states that our world has ever seen. So that, that's just so interesting to me. But, but here's the flip side, right? If, if you took me out to a bridge and tied a bungee cord to my feet and said, you want to go bungee jumping? I would say, hell no. <laughs> like, but, but that's the difference, right? Is that there are some people who will like, just do like that myself. without even thinking. Like exactly. you jumped out of a plane. I think yeah. that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I loved, like, I want to, I want to, you put on the squirrel suit and fly. What, what, what's that called? I want to do that. I want to bungee Oh, the jump. wingsuit. Yeah. The yeah wing get on suit. a wingsuit. Yeah, exactly. Those you know, things like that. I love, right. I love, and I always ask myself, Muhammad, where, what happened to me? Because even as a little boy, I used to love to fight, right? I would fight all the time. Mm-hmm. They used to call me Ali. My parents would call me Ali. My friends would call me Ali. Man, mm-hmm. I'm a punk now. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't want to fight. <laughs> like, I got time for, right? I'm like, oh, God, you know, here we go again. Uh, something changed, yeah. but I still love, I still love adventure. I still love that. But if you put a gun to me, you, you put, put me in a, uh, an opportunity where the, there might be some harm to my body by inflicting somebody else. I don't know. Right. But I also yeah, know that I, tr- I, I, go ahead. I think so. So I think in, in my industry, there's a high rate of alcoholism because, because you, you see, I mean, I'm not going to curse on your show, but you see all sorts of stuff that people should never see in their lives. I, I've seen, a, I've seen a little bit, not, not as much as others, but I think people look for an escape, right? Mm, and right. there's some parts of the world where you're in a war zone, every foreign correspondent knows the best bar in town. <laughs> and if, if you, if you go there in the evening, you're going to meet other foreign correspondents and everybody's just getting plastered. And so thankfully I don't drink because if I did, I'd be wasted every night. Oh my, yeah. After saying that, like, but so everybody says like, you know, people told me you need an anchor, right? You need something that's going to anchor you so that you don't fly off the rails. Otherwise you'll fly off really fast. And so a lot of the, a lot of people in this industry, like if you're a foreign correspondent, like they're exciting people, they go bungee jumping on weekends, they do all sorts of stuff. They're very social, like they just have huge networks, they could fly into any city and they have friends there and they'll hang out with them, they'll do all that stuff. When I'm finished my assignments, I come home and play Scrabble with my kids. And that's, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Like, but that I, I think that just keeps me grounded. Like I, first of all, you don't see a lot of foreign correspondents, certainly not ones who travel a lot, who are married. To begin with, a lot of people are just single because, you know, marriage requires certain sacrifices and certain commitments. And then it's even rarer to find people who have kids. And I had kids while, you know, a number of kids and I was flying off to war zones. <laughs> right. I often and, think about and, Miguel Almaguer, who's on M- NBC all the time. I always wonder, I'm like, is this dude married? Because he's flying off. He's doing his thing. He seems like he, he seems like a playboy. But uh, uh, that's always interesting because he's always he's always in the crisis situation here domestically. And yeah, and, and I, I think, wonder about I think that. But it's it's not just that. I think it's just in life in general, you need an anchor. Right. Right. You need something that's gonna hold you down, maybe keep you humble if you can, and just just hold you back from doing all the silly impulsive things that we're tempted to do in life, right? Yes. And people have different anchors, man. For some people, their anchors are their friends. And for for better or for worse, if they have good friends, then it keeps them grounded in a good way. And if you have friends who are negative influence, then, you know, you get anchored in that direction. But I think just everybody just needs an anchor, not just journalists or correspondents, but like you, me, everybody. I would agree. I think about what's your contrast. What's your anchor? (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, I think about the contrast between my, my friends who I think are hugely successful and then myself, which is probably what I shouldn't do. And so if you're listening, don't compare yourself to your friends. But they're anchored. They have families. They have children. They are very, very anchored. And they're successful. They have grounding. My two best friends, one uh, is a real estate investor and the other is a board certified cardiologist. And they just, you know, they have a different lifestyle than Charles Corpru. And... They go home to their families and they love their wives. They love their children and they're very, very grounded. And I think for me and the vulnerability of this is a great question. My mother and father are my grounding, um, mm. but I want something else. I want something because eventually, sadly, they are up in age. They're they're not going to be here. And yeah. to have that grounding, to have that partner uh, and to have a family to say this, I don't need to go off and do something with my boys. Um, which I'm always craving for now, but to come home and to see my family and to spend time with it, like you said, to come home and play Scrabble and that be a part of my life and to be happy. 
life has changed so dramatically over the last couple of years where I've done a lot of personal work and the things that provided me gratification just don't do it anymore. I, I don't seek those types of gratification anymore. And so wanting that type of grounding to move forward, that's what I'm looking for. So I'm always happy to hear, like you said, coming home, spending time with your wife, uh, your family, hearing them means that this this is this is how we become the healthiest versions of ourselves when we have these things like family to ground and good friends to ground us. So I appreciate that. Our time is coming up and you know I'm always it flies when you're doing something that you love. I'm sure it feels the same way for you when you're in a hell a black hawk helicopter or on the ground uh, in Tahrir Square in Egypt. That was so interesting hearing that because part of what's a revolution was born out of those students in Tahrir Square and Tom wow. Friedman, Tom Friedman talking about being immersed in that and how it was the you know, back in two thousand eleven it was the greatest time to think about revolution in individual lives and countries, but it was the hardest time to find a job here in the country. And I began asking myself that question, what's your revolution, Charles? What's your revolution? And so to hear that, you know, that you were a part of that in Egypt during that period of time just even solidifies more of my respect for you. You know, you know, as we come to a, a close of the show, Mohammed, I always ask this question like, you know, and we've talked about it a little bit more, what are some tips and strategies that you would give to men as they are attempting to find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves? Wow, that's um, that's such a profound question. And I I feel like I'm nobody, right? And let's be honest, I am nobody. Like 100 years from now, nobody is going to remember Muhammad Liba. So I don't know. I don't know if if I have any advice, but I, what I would say is try to make every day that you live better than the one that you lived before. And that's not unique wisdom or guidance. That's something that people way smarter than me have been saying for, for generations. And, and I think, so this, this goes back to the first question, and this is a nice way to bookend our talk. I think, and I have a belief, and I think most people around the world actually have this belief that when it's my time to go in whatever form whatever place we're going to after this, at some point, I'm going to be asked, how did you spend your time on Earth? How did you spend your time on this tiny little planet that's, you know, hundreds of light years away from anything else? How did you spend your time there? And I want to be able to say that I spent my time doing something good. And I think if you just keep that in mind, if you live your life with that expectation that at some point, you're going to be asked what you did with your time here, it it just forces you to step back a little bit and act with purpose and act with conviction. Because knowing that, it means it, it, it sets your life in a direction with a mission. Right. Whatever that mission is, right? Maybe, mm -hmm. it's, maybe it's you want to build a church or maybe it's you just want to get that job you always wanted, right? Or like, like Kobe, who, who I talk about often, sometimes it just means being the best at whatever it is that you're doing with like relentless conviction, right? So, so shoot 400 shots a day and wake up at 7am in the morning to do it, right? Or if you're a janitor, figure out how you can be the best janitor in the building. I think just, just live with that in mind, that if somebody asked you, how did you spend your time here? What would you say? Right. It's a great question and a great way for people to think about that. Like you, I, I always say, how can you plus one the day, be, the day before? Right. Yeah, that's that's a great way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, how do you plus one everything, everything you're doing? And I think for me, as I think about this, my hopefully my gift to the world, right, is this this show. And 
the conversations that I have. And you're with. doing it. You're doing it, doctor. You're doing it. Man. You're 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 changing people's lives. Look, I've 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 listened in. I've been a viewer, a listener of your show on a, on a number of the shows, and you're doing it just by asking these questions. Thank you. It means a lot. It, it means a lot. And hopefully, you know, a hundred years from now, when they see all of the work that you've done and the work that I've done, people can go back. That's the one thing about information these days, Muhammad, is that this is chronicled now, right? And people 50 years from now will have the ability to go back and see the work that we've done or listen to the work that we've done. And I'm, I'm hoping that people will still be able to take from, you know, the podcast, like, wow, I'm still trying to be the best version of myself, right? That I heard the Muhammad Lita show and I'm thinking about what grounds me, right? How can I be calm in the face of the adversity that life throws at me? And that's what I'm hoping for. I'm always, I'm always hoping that people listen and say, I, I can plus one the day before, as you just said, that I'm better than I was yesterday because I continue to work. And that's my hope. That, that's that's yeah. my revolution. Oh. You, you know what I'm hoping for, Charles? Go ahead. I'm hoping the NBA season comes back <laughs> and that my next Raptors game, the seat next to me won't be empty because you'll be sitting right there. Yeah, I look forward to that, brother. I definitely look forward to that. And I am grateful for this time, spending time with you on my uh, what I call the best for, best hour of my week with one of my close friends. And, you know, we've only been knowing each other a little a little over a year now, but it has been a remarkable friendship and I, I, I value it. Uh, tremendously and very happy that I was able to spend a wonderful evening with you watching your Raptors win the NBA championship and will wish for them to wish to win again. And so good luck. And let's, let's both hope that the NBA season comes back and that we can overcome this virus that is ravaging our communities around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Charles, the, the no. pleasure was mine. Thank you. And for everyone out there listening to the What's a Revolution show, I hope that you are safe, that you're healthy, that your families are making strides and protecting themselves, that you're protecting yourselves, but you're also giving of yourself in this time of need. We have to come together. We cannot distance ourselves so much that we lose the communities that we have built. And so I ask you to make this your revolution, to figure out ways to still come together. Zoom, Skype, Talk to your friends. Don't allow yourself to sit in isolation where you're losing touch with the world. And I'm here if you need me. You can always contact me at whatsyourrevolution.com, Twitter, Instagram, or on my personal Facebook at Charles Corpru. I wish you the best, everyone, and always, always, always be answered to what we think here at the What's Your Revolution show is the most thought-provoking question of your life. Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Peace.